Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, delegates, all to our final episode of the Delegation Game. This here is our final narrative episode, where what you've done in the previous week will have an impact on the story. In our final two episodes to come, so the conclusion and epilogue, or maybe I'm not going to call it an epilogue, not quite sure what I'm going to call it yet, but the consequences of your actions and the curious inner workings of my mind will tell those stories. I hope you'll stay tuned for those final episodes where the fate of the world, to some extent at least, will be examined, and the fate of your individual delegates will also be addressed. Expect those two episodes next Monday on the 8th of July, all being well with our scheduling. For now, though, we need to get into this thing. It wasn't deliberate, although it's certainly pleasing to my OCD senses, that we contain our mad story within 20 episodes, so without any further ado... Let's see how that story comes to an end. The peacemakers are all assembled. The delegates are all in a row. And it remains to make peace and bid good luck and godspeed to the friends you have met over the last six months. The room was heavy with anticipation. Or perhaps it was simply the weight of so many thousands of breaths all being released and captured at once. This was it, the final plenary conference, the exclamation point on a series of diplomatic achievements which were without equal in human history. In a flurry of activity, peace treaties had been made with all the relevant parties, and there was much to be proud of. This likely explained the fact that even though there was a great deal on the line, the mood was amenable to some more discussion. It was inevitable that the delegates assembled would want to speak about the treaty or the events of the last few months. Here, in the great conference room of the Annabay Hotel, many would get their chance, if not now, then in a couple of hours, when the Austrian peace treaty was also signed. As was traditional, the arbitration committee, headed by Felix Kalender, presided over the deliberations. This guaranteed some measure of neutrality and fairness, and suggested that the floor would be open for some German comments as well. Judging by the expressions on the French and British delegates' faces, though, 
Perhaps one should not hold their breath. The room had been set up specifically to avoid the impression of a dictated piece. The tables were all on the same level, the press were herded to the left side of the room, and the Germans were not surrounded with hostile delegates, and had to face only a table containing the members of the Council of Eight and Arbitration Committee. Since those bodies could overlap, the scene was not intimidating as it could have been, or indeed as some had wanted it to be. It was approaching 3pm on Friday the 28th of June 1919, and a hush of anticipation had set in. While their privileged gathering formed the centrepiece of the room, there would necessarily be time for other delegates, also present, to move forward and sign once the major powers had said their piece and ascribed their names to the document. The expressions on the Germans' faces said a great deal. There was resignation, perhaps, bitterness, but not much in the way of surprise or anger. Having accustomed themselves to the terms over the last few months, only the status of Bavaria and some issues with the Polish border had been outstanding recently, and these issues had been resolved with relative amicability. It was time to serve his duty for the final time. Felix Kalender rose from his chair at the centre of the long, polished oak table and inhaled. The voice had thankfully returned after the previous week. Gentlemen, Kalender began, we are gathered here, men from nations great and small, to make a peace which will last all of mankind. Such a mission may seem impossible, but throughout the last few months we have all sought to aim high in our peacemaking efforts, and we have been rewarded for it. To my left are the leaders of Britain and France, as well as the American and Japanese leaders. On my right are those members of the Arbitration Committee, which includes myself, the Spanish Premier and the Alsatian statesman. Recently we have worked in tandem and with a considerable set of objectives, and it is the culmination of these objectives which now brings us here to this place in this luxurious room. Gentlemen, you know by now that I earnestly desire for all men to live in peace and for war to abandon this continent once and for all. I urge you therefore to be brave today and to imagine that such a vision is possible. I urge you also not to direct insults today, but to be conciliatory in your speech and be considerate in your comments. We are united by a common purpose, that of seeking the best future possible for our peoples and descendants. That future begins today and rests on the actions and decisions we make. May God be with us all. As the process had been rehearsed, Antonio Mora, the Premier of Spain, rose to his feet as Kalender sat down. He nodded a thanks at the Swiss chairman before saying, Gentlemen, thank you for your patience and your hard efforts over the last several months. At times, it seemed as though we would never reach a proper peace, and as our conference moved from one place to the next, I'm sure there were many among us that doubted whether peace was even possible. Yet, here we are, gentlemen, in spite of our previous misgivings, in spite of the terrible scars which had been inflicted by the war, and in spite of the damage which the last six months of feverish negotiations have inflicted upon our relationships. Let us declare now that we earnestly desire to make peace, just as recklessly and desperately as all of Europe seemed in 1914, to make war. We have moved on from such terrifying scenes, and we say, never again will Europe fall to those false gods of glory and conflict. By the lessons learned during this conference, and the war before it, we know now that negotiation provides the best, indeed, the only way forward. To our German peers, know that we do not hate you, and that in many respects we have come to value the lessons your statesmen have taught us, particularly in the realm of sacrifice, which the great commander of men, 
Paul von Leto Vorbeck has demonstrated to us all so recently. I urge you, gentlemen of the former Reich, to view this moment not in bitterness, but with hope. Your signatures are not made upon a victor's peace, but upon a document which plans for a better Europe, a Europe which hopes to be thoroughly and amicably intertwined with that of Germany. As Mora sat down, Charles Scheer, the Alsatian delegate on the Arbitration Committee, rose to his feet. I will not mince words, gentlemen, for you know that the last few months have been taxing as well as rewarding. I do hope, though, that the wounds between ourselves and the German people will be able to heal more completely than this broken bone in my nose. A few laughs could be heard from the audience, and Lloyd George rolled his eyes, as Scheer, unperturbed, continued. Truly, gentlemen, we have been through much, and I hold this wound as a badge of honour, for it is the result of conflict ignited by men of passion and nearly brought France to the brink of anarchy. It is the outcome of giving fair and modest counsel, when extremism might be more popular. But most of all, gentlemen, it is the result of several years of war, the likes of which we shall never again see in our lifetimes. Our wounds, whether physical or psychological, will heal in time, but there remains an army of wounded and dead, several miles long, which we must not forget. For their sake and for the sake of our children, unborn and living, we must not suffer a repeat of this calamity. Following our work today, I urge you all to pray, to work, to publicise this great mission of peace. Today we say nothing is of more value than a human life, and that together we can help preserve it. A light applause followed, and a brief smile could even be seen on Philip Scheidemann's face. Had the German Chancellor become more relaxed? Maybe he was thinking forward to the following year, when his National Democratic Party could be expected to gain a great proportion of the vote. Or maybe he had simply been caught off guard by a comment made by Paul von Leto Vorbeck. Certainly it wasn't anything that Johann Hoffmann had said. Von Leto Vorbeck and Scheidemann had made it their mission to ignore the Bavarian delegate, to communicate in as polite a way as possible, without speaking, that is, that they thoroughly disapproved of Hoffmann's course. Whatever smiles he may have been sheltering would surely have left the building once Premier Poincaré rose to his feet. As the president during the eruption of this great war, and a resident of Alsace-Lorraine when German troops had marched in in 1871, Scheidemann knew that Germany could expect a little quarter from him. At the very least, though, a silver lining would be that President Marshal Foch would not be speaking first, and would not be setting the tone. Perhaps the French premier would adopt a different approach? Scheidemann realised he was holding his breath as Poincaré began to speak. Gentlemen of the conference and gentlemen representing Germany, I wish to address my remarks to all of you because all of you have seen the best and worst elements of peacemaking on a human level over the last half year. I know that when I led this country as president through the most desperate crisis in France's history, there was hope that, at the end, we would reap the benefits of a defeated foe and a strengthened alliance with our allies. Of course, matters have not proceeded so straightforwardly. Russia remains in turmoil and, for a time, France was consumed by riots and demonstrations, provoked by the impression that too much had been given to the enemy in the negotiations and not enough had been gained. Notwithstanding the accuracy of these impressions, they caused our conference organisation some inconvenience. I wish to repeat my earlier thanks to the British government for committing to host the second half of this conference, following those aforementioned disruptions. Gentlemen, while it may in fact seem like a lifetime ago, I wish also to pause for a moment to remember my predecessor in this office, 
George Clemenceau. Clemenceau and I rarely agreed, but one thing which we could agree on were matters of patriotism. France was saved by our collective leadership, and now I commit to saving her during the peace, with Clemenceau's example foremost in my mind. This brings me to the matter of the German delegation seated presently before me. At this, the three Germans suddenly focused their attention on the French Premier, who paused for effect before continuing. Indeed, gentlemen of Germany, you will note that the journey along this peace conference has been a treacherous one. As I have lost an esteemed colleague and friend, so too has Germany lost Horten von Hotzendorf in the course of similar riots which overcame Germany many months ago. Our people have been decimated by this recent war and wholly dissatisfied by these negotiations. It is vital for the sake of the Franco-German relationship that we do not continue to fail them. As this Treaty of Buckingham makes clear, France earnestly desires to repair its relationship with Germany. But before this can be done, Germany must take responsibility for the error of its ways. When I was but a child, your soldiers invaded my homeland and stole it away from the French centre. I, like many Alsatians, burned thereafter for revenge and also for justice. Justice, gentlemen of Germany, is what we give you today. Having familiarised myself with the vision of Europe set forth by German war planners in 1914, I know that this is much more than what you had intended to give France had you been victorious. We do not wish to dominate Germany, merely to limit her capacity for violence, which has upset Europe twice in the last generation. We do not wish to destroy Germany, only to punish her for the crimes her statesmen have committed. We do not wish to marginalise Germany, only to make her people feel the penalty of making war without success. Rest assured, if you faithfully adhere to the terms of the peace settlement, you will find that within the decade, Bavaria and the Rhineland, pending plebiscites, will be returned to Germany proper. Frustrate the terms of this peace, however, gentlemen, and you will find in France a renewed determination to combat German crimes at every turn. This is my message to you now, gentlemen, and for the sake of generations to come, See that it is heeded. Poincaré then sat down, and the Germans breathed a sigh of relief. The message was as expected, but no final hour alterations were proposed or harsh penalties revealed as a surprise. After a brief whispering with his Prime Minister, Sir Alistair Tancred rose to his feet, as previously arranged. My friends, having just spoken with the Prime Minister, he wishes to communicate his sincere thanks for gathering in this hotel and for striving always to make a fair peace. Your efforts have been fraught with difficulties, but they are also extremely heartening for peacemakers to come. The British public has been held in rapture by the deliberations going on in these halls, and it is a source of immense pride that London's Annabay Hotel was selected to host these negotiations. I wish personally to thank those that have made these negotiations easier and who have worked to meet Britain halfway. I speak in particular of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who agreed to meet me in Paris many months ago to facilitate meaningful negotiations, which later enabled the President Marshal to come here and participate personally. Britain has received gracious support from its new ally in Spain, and the assistance of her Dominion partners across the world has also been warmly welcomed and noted. The creation of new organisations geared towards peace, such as the Continental Defence Accord and the Pact of Cartagena, will protect the decisions made here. Unfortunately, as we learned, the League of Nations, which President Woodrow Wilson imagined, was too great a leap into the unknown. However, with these commitments to maintaining the settlement and reducing the dangers of Bolshevism, I'm confident that we will all be able to 
Great, an orator which will stand the test of time. Gentlemen of Germany, your role in this process is simple. Recognize the responsibility of your late Reich to the devastation which was recently visited upon the world. Accept your defeat and demonstrate your willingness to move forward with us. There is no reason why, in ten years, perhaps, Germany might not join the family of nations, united in common defence against dangers like Bolshevism. The journey towards that promised land will take time, however, and it is in the interests of Germans to endure this journey and not to take it for granted. Tancred then sat down, and President Marshal Foch shot up after him, ahead of schedule. Felix Kalender barely raised an eyebrow, merely gesturing to Josef Pilsudski, whom Foch had skipped ahead of, that he would be permitted to speak after the President Marshal. My fellow peacemakers, Foch began, apparently flustered or perhaps just feigning surprise. May I express my sincere thanks to Sir Alistair Tancred, whose earnest diplomatic efforts has earned my respect, as well as a well-deserved set of plaudits from His Majesty's government. I feel compelled to speak to the hard work done by all present in this room, and to echo their sentiments. You know by now that I have worked hard for peace and justice, and that I have sought at all times to combat tyranny, wherever it may reside. So you have seen and may have participated in the Clemenceau Directive, aimed at rescuing the Russian people from the evils of Bolshevism. Unfortunately, it seems that for now, the Russian people cannot be saved. The East remains volatile, and it is therefore critical that Germany play its part in defending Western civilization from this terrible barbarism. Such defence will involve cooperation with nations that Germany hesitates to recognise, such as Poland, Czechoslovakia and others. But I warn you, Germans, here in this room, that the Allied contract that you see before you is law, and must be adhered to as such. You break this contract, gentlemen of Germany, and you break the trust of the Allied delegates present in this room. To do so is to welcome further hardship for the German people, not to mention the efforts which the Allies will be forced to expend. Following this expedition, which will result in a more severe German defeat than before, you must imagine that we will have little time for considerations of German interest, and we will instead work to destroy the German apparatus, so that it can never possibly threaten the peace of Europe ever again. As Foch's speech seemed to descend into violent threats, awkward coughs and shifting could be felt, and it seemed Foch felt it too, as he paused for a couple of seconds before writing himself. Therefore, gentlemen of Germany, heed these threats and turn back from this cliff edge. Join us now in peace, and we commit to helping Germany in its quest to return to the camp of civilised nations. Foch sat down, and Pilsudski rose to his feet, glaring at Foch as he did so. There was nothing quite like being usurped on a public forum to make you suddenly hate your friends, but Pilsudski quickly overcame his emotions and launched into a passionate defence of Polish sovereignty. Gentlemen, Poland does not recognise allies or enemies, having fought on both sides and having been divided between three empires for over a century. Instead, Poland sees people, people who are in desperate need of peace. Second, Poland sees Poles living abroad and closer to home, and not yet united with the mother country. Many of these Poles, indeed, live in the disputed Polish corridor region, which I assure you is less a corridor and more a historic portion of the old republic, which existed prior to its dissolution in 1795 by its rapacious neighbours. But you did not come here for a history lesson, my friends. You came here to watch peace be made. Poland, perhaps more than any other power on this continent, 
desire is a strong, sensible and reasonable peace to be made. We had the most to lose if this peace should fail, being caught between the German and Russian states and too far from our traditional friends to avail of their succour. Friendship is what we offer Germany then, in the hope that in the future the border regions which have come under attention can be resolved. Poland, of course, does not ask for special treatment, only equality with her allies, allies who have received their due. Poland, I feel, must receive its due as well. And yet I issue a stern warning to Germany and to Europe right now. Russia remains a serious threat. With Lenin gone and the country likely to plunge further into chaos, nobody can predict what the outcome will be. I'm therefore encouraged that Allied approval of a Ukrainian protectorate under Poland has been received. Poland and Ukraine were historically linked, similarly to Lithuania before the aforementioned crimes of 1795 were perpetrated. And here again I regret I have devolved into a history lesson. For sure, my friends, history lessons are occasionally tedious, but they are also difficult to avoid at times. Should we fail today, it will be our failures that historians will examine, our shortcomings which will be considered and studied, so that future generations do not repeat our mistakes. I urge all of us present today, then, do not take this opportunity for granted, and do not risk the nightmare of further war becoming a reality. We must move forward. We must not be the terrible lessons of the past, but the example to our children and to their children of how to repair a broken world. Thank you. Arthur McCallville of Newfoundland then rose to his feet, one of the few Dominion statesmen to request a voice at this point in the conference. He began, Gentlemen, as a delegate of Newfoundland, I am sure many will wonder why I feel it necessary to stand up and speak with you today. Surely Newfoundland is too far away to have felt the pain of this war. Certainly, gentlemen, Newfoundland is thousands of miles from Europe, and yet many thousands of Newfoundlanders gave their lives on the Western Front. Many thousands more returned home as broken shells, confined to remember these hideous scenes for all eternity. The war, in short, has reached all across the world. This is the consequence of a quarrel between the great powers in Europe. It touches all peoples, it is felt everywhere. I urge you, gentlemen of Germany, do not force such a test on the peoples of the world again, not just for their sake, but for your own. Having experienced these horrors themselves, woe be upon anyone who would make the sons of Newfoundland return to the Western Front once again. Save yourself, Germany, by accepting this fair and balanced arrangement, within which the signature and tone of small powers like Newfoundland can be found. Just as we played our role during the war, we continued to wield our own measure of influence during the peace. Arthur McCallville's Canadian counterpart, Colonel William Antrobus Griesbach, rose as planned next. He was the final individual allowed to speak on the Allied side, before the Germans would be permitted to do so. The three Germans were evidently growing restless, and Griesbach could detect this mood in the room as well, saying, My friends, I know that the atmosphere has increased with every minute spent not signing the peace, but I felt compelled today to make a brief note, as a man of military credentials, of the importance in reducing the arms which Germany will wield. I have always prided myself on a fair judgment of my foes, and the Germans are no different. Having broken the peace, it will be righteous indeed to see Germany broken by this peace. But we do not take this path. Instead, we approach Germany with sense and reason, but also with justice in mind. Germany, your statesman ordered, violated the sovereignty of your neighbours, and these neighbours have now gained at your expense. Germany, your soldiers marched over the lands of peaceful nations, and these soldiers have now been significantly reduced as a result. Note, Germany, that 
I wished to see a complete elimination of your armed forces, or at least as much a reduction as was possible. I was persuaded not to go so far in arguing for the removal of your army, since it may be needed in the East. Recent actions, such as Operation Redeemer, have vindicated this argument, but do not think that I have forgotten your crimes. The question was never whether Germans made great soldiers, but whether German soldiers made good men. The question remains to be answered, I feel, and you can answer it in the following years, as you prove your worth and faithfulness by adhering to these very reasonable peace terms, as laid down in this Treaty of Buckingham. As Griesbach sat down, Cadender rose and indicated to the Germans that they would now be entitled to speak if they desired. It was by no means certain that any of the three men would desire to speak. At the very least, though, it was now possible that their opinions could be heard, since these opinions would plainly have no bearing on the settlement in front of them. At worst, they could issue a protest, but they would still be forced to sign. So who would speak first? Glancing at his two colleagues, Johann Hoffmann rose from his chair, piece of paper in hand. The Bavarian separatists had been buoyed by the recent news that Bavaria would be separated from Germany for ten years, pending a plebiscite in 1930, along with the Rhineland plebiscite. He now had to find a way to communicate his satisfaction without sounding defeatist or anti-German to his colleagues beside him. It was a difficult balancing act to maintain, but Hoffmann tried his best, saying... Gentlemen, the representatives of Germany before you have come here today willing to accept what must be accepted in order to advance to the new order which awaits. This war has not left a single soldier unaffected, a single nation untouched, and in its fury it tore asunder the old order which had for so long granted nations like Germany some succour. There is indeed time to regret and mourn the passing of this old order, but first we must mark its passing by signing this Treaty of Buckingham. This treaty, gentlemen, is not wholly favourable, and indeed, somewhat harsh towards Germany. Yet it is a burden which must be borne, if this is what it takes to demonstrate, here and now, that Bavaria, and that Germany, is not your enemy. We, like you, were caught up in the ravages of this war. Our men fought, bled, and died. Our widows continue to long for relief. Our wounded remain overwhelmed. Germany is but a nation on the losing side, and yet we look forward, all our people, to rebuilding, when we demonstrate to the world just how capable Germans are of staring defeat in the face and refusing to blink, it is nothing less than the recovery of France in the 1870s, and may I reiterate my great respect for my French counterparts in this respect. Gentlemen of France, while my colleagues do not see eye to eye on everything, we do agree that the time for warfare has passed. Now, Germany, like its neighbours, wishes to help facilitate the transition to peaceful relations, starting now in this room. As Hoffmann sat down, Paul von Leto Vorbeck stood up. The general commanded a considerable amount of respect from the room, thanks to his recent exploits, although even before, he was known as a commander of some repute, and had been honoured by friends and foes alike. Unlike Hoffmann's presentation, which was accorded begrudging courtesy, von Leto Vorbeck's speech was given full and willing attention, and they hung on his every word. It certainly helped that, unlike Hoffmann, von Leto Vorbeck made use of his fluent English, perhaps as a way of digging at Hoffmann once more. Gentlemen of the nations, I thank you for receiving Germany today, von Leto Vorbeck began. I wish to communicate my sincere appreciation for the many letters of commendation and thanks which I have received over the previous weeks since my return from Russia. 
I should emphasize that other men, such as General David McKay, who are in this room right now, went far and beyond the call of duty in service to their homeland. I am sure that Mr. McKay would be the first one to tell you, as will I, that this period of service must now be at an end. We must not mobilize the manhood of this continent ever again. We must not send our sons to die on some field of no importance. We must not be returned here in a generation's time to make these same arguments and discuss these same shortcomings in the international system. Germany, like France in 1871, has been defeated, a fact which many of my colleagues find difficult to accept, but which is a historical fact and is undisputed. So Germany will today sign this peace and move into the concert of nations, as is the general order in the life cycle of states. But know this, assembled delegates, this treaty will not solve all the problems of the world. It leaves Germans upset in Bavaria, who despite the urgings of my honourable colleague, are not contented to see Bavaria separated from Germany's centre. To the east, the creation of new nation-states in the vacuum of Russian and Habsburg empires creates opportunities for German statesmen unwilling to accept this new order. In short, gentlemen, the treaty is not the end word. It is not the insurance policy against future war. At least, it is not such a thing, unless you make it so. I urge you all to work, therefore, and work diligently to prevent such a terrible rupture as that of 1914 from happening again. In the name of the millions for whom such a promise is too late, and the millions to come who have a chance still, we must not fail. An applause followed. Evidently, von Leto Vorbeck was the favourite German of the Allies, and the esteemed general sat down, satisfied with his words. Before Teddy Roosevelt could close the proceedings, Chancellor Philip Scheidemann rose from his chair, and the begrudging silence returned. Many were coming to regret the decision to let these Germans make speeches, but at least this one promised to be the last. Gentlemen, gentlemen, Scheidemann began, talking over the whispering which had begun and shortly died down. Before the meeting closes and our signatures are ascribed to the document, I would not be a proper statesman of Germany if I did not signal my protest at the terms of this treaty, which Germany is being forced to sign under duress. Germany, in spite of what Allied lawmakers may claim, is not wholly responsible for the war, nor is it fair or accurate to lay blame as such. Germany took part in a winding set of diplomatic crises wherein, granted, her statesmen ought to have acted differently, but so too should have her counterparts and peers. Look, for instance, to Austria, where the Habsburg Declaration of War forced our hand in 1914. Now, as I understand it, the Allies have inexplicably allowed the Habsburg king to return to Hungary, and have even granted his family possession of Croatia. What injustice this represents, considering that our Kaiser has not been granted an opportunity to return, and is even greeted with the ludicrous suggestion that he ought to be arrested or somehow held accountable for the events which have recently occurred. I would not, as I said, be a statesman of worth if I did not register my protest with the opening paragraphs of the peace treaty which established German culpability for the war. Furthermore, know that Germany is being punished not for starting the war, but for losing it. Before radical nationalists took over in France, Germany seemed poised to receive a reasonable peace, and now I can see that such hopes have been in vain. My people back home will be most perturbed and upset, and with extreme difficulty will I try to restrain their passions. Know that you must treat Germany fairly, as a peer, if you wish to have her as a friend in the future. I cannot guarantee how history will view this moment, but I know that as this treaty is forced upon her, disaster looms around the corner, and in the hearts of all vengeful Germans.
A pained silence followed Scheidemann's speech. Von Lettel Vorbeck seemed furious. This was not the note that he wanted to leave the conversation on. At least if he had gone last, respect and admiration, tinged perhaps with a sense of mercy and accommodation, might be for Germany and might follow in future negotiations. Now, though, the Allies visibly turned up their noses at Scheidemann's presentation. How would this man come to be the Chancellor? Von Lettel Vorbeck wondered, if he took to performing such inflammatory speeches. Perhaps the Chancellor simply believed there was no point in mincing words, and that the damage was already done regardless. As he pondered, Von Lettel Vorbeck saw Teddy Roosevelt rise out of his chair to close the meeting. Thank you, assembled delegates. Traditionally, the President of the conference would close these meetings, but since replacing Clemenceau never seemed correct, I have been nominated to do this great honour. Shortly, the signing of the Treaty of Peace will begin. The Germans will sign first, followed by the great powers of the United States, Britain, Japan and France, and thereafter Italy, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Portugal, Spain, Brazil, Canada, Australia, and so on until your country's turn has come. Thank you for your patience in listening to one another. It is a good practice for the later assembly of an annual conference, which should be held later in the year for the first time. Through diplomacy, not through force, gentlemen, this settlement will stand the test of time. We must ensure that diplomacy does not fail, but that it succeeds and maintains over the world a period of peace unequalled in our history. We owe it to those who are no longer with us and those who are not yet with us to do no less. Thank you. The signing process will now begin. Arthur McCauville stared off into the distance, the characters fading from his view as the light streamed into the skylight. As if on cue, the sun had emerged at approximately 3.45. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. PM just as the assembled delegates were due to sign. It caused something of a gasp to emerge from the participants, but perhaps it was not a sign of a blessing from God, but a warning? McCallville wasn't sure, but he noted that the process was speeding up, 
and before long it was his turn to sign. Making his way to the table carefully, in as delicate a hand as he could, McCalville added his signature to the long list of others. He counted an excess of 30 names already affixed to the document, and he walked to the side to wait for the others to finish. When they did, that gong donated by Prince Sharoon of Siam was rung, and on that signal, cannons brought in for that special purpose were fired off in the courtyard. This in turn provided the additional signal for the vessels at anchor some miles away. The distant booms of the cannons could be made out as the roaring of the crowd outside grew louder. As he walked, McCallville bumped into a well-dressed man from the British Foreign Office and mouthed an apology. The man replied with some enthusiasm, Ah, I know who you are, old chap. You're Mr. McCallville from Newfoundland, correct? You've done great work, sir. Puzzled, McCallville was about to ask the question before the man answered it for him. Ah, of course. Forgive me. I am part of the British delegation at the Foreign Office. Mostly Greek and Czech affairs, sir. Nicholson, sir. Harold Nicholson is the name. Very good to meet you. Very good indeed. Nicholson then wandered off to chat with someone else, and McCallville sheepishly followed the other delegates out into the courtyard, where it was said that a grand photograph of the relevant delegates was being taken. The more important delegates were at the front, of course, but he spotted Owen Lind in the middle, and McCallville made his way over to him. Just in time, Mr. McCallville, Lind said. We are about to be famous. Wouldn't want to miss that, would we? McCallville chuckled. Certainly not, Mr. Lind. Such things are essential for posterity. Smile, came the order from the photographer, as the delegates of the conference suddenly froze like ice statues. An unrealistic smile suddenly stuck on their faces. McCallville felt that they all looked unreal, and then realised it was because, in the last few months, he hadn't actually seen many of them smile or even grin. No, mostly. These delegates had the same worn expressions on their faces all the time. Now, though, they were content to engage in some self-congratulation. McCallville heard it said that that evening there would be a reception in Prince Sharoon's executive suite, and that it would be rude not to attend. I heard, Owen Lynn said with a grin, that the Kingdom of Siam will be personally offended if we do not drink every bit of His Grace's reserves of wine. McCallville grinned back. He was more than ready to let loose, and even more eager to return home. On some curious, difficult-to-define level, though, McCallville was sure that he would miss all of this. Carl Renner couldn't help but sweat. It was now his turn in the unwanted spotlight. His German cousins had had their turn, and such was the way of the conference that he would have to face this terrifying music now, and utterly alone, no less. Von Leto Vorbeck had reassured him that the mood of the delegates was patient and merciful, so long as one did not talk for too long. Also, Von Leto Vorbeck had assured him, few were as bothered with or angry at Austria as they were with Germany, so only the more dedicated delegates would be in attendance to arrange the ceremonials. All Renner wanted was to have no opportunity to embarrass himself, if he could get through these proceedings without any major gaffes, then that would be good enough for him. The room was large and airy with the windows open, and the setup seemed generally more relaxed. Some even had their shirts unbuttoned at the top, as if to signify that they were finished with ceremony altogether. But there was this small matter of Austria remaining, which they could not ignore. Before Renner sat representatives of the Big Four, 
with Italy's Vittorio Orlando alongside them per his personal request. Behind him, members of the press and minor delegates also sat. Having delegated some of his duties, Felix Kalender was replaced here by Joseph Zahn of the American delegation, who went some way towards settling Renner's nerves, though Joseph Zahn's German was not as good as he thought it was, and the man's accent could occasionally confuse more than it helped. Still, the arrangement was far from dire, and a few smiles from some eager delegates could even be detected. Sure, the treaty was already written, but at the very least, Renner hoped, he would not be given cause for embarrassment here. Those assembled seemed to intend to treat him with every respect, and René Massigli was at least in place of those hotheads Poincaré, or worse, the Marshal President, or whatever he called himself. Zan stood up to speak, and the other delegates in attendance followed his lead. Renner waited with bated breath to see what the man would say. He could hear the blood pumping around his ears. Gentlemen, I thank you all for coming. I understand that this has been an eventful day already for many of you currently present, but the time has come to officiate over this final treaty process. It is necessary to offer a certain level of congratulations, as the finalisation of the Austrian treaty was completed during a very busy week. I believe that it is a testament to the seriousness with which you all view your peacemaking mission, and for the next period, will be accepting comments on this treaty from the interested parties. For those that might be unaware, I am a delegate of the United States, but I will be presiding as a neutral intermediary today. To my left is seated Walter Cameron, who will be representing the United States. Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam, to my right, will be representing Britain. René Massigli, to his right, will represent France. To the left of Walter Cameron is seated Vittorio Orlando, Premier of Italy, and to his left is seated Prince Sione of Japan. I understand that in addition to these figures, we will be accepting comments from Romanian, Czech, Polish and Canadian representatives. First, however, as a gesture of friendship, I now open the floor to His Royal Highness, the King of Hungary, Charles of Habsburg. Karl Renner surveyed the delegates seated in front of him. All looked bored and mostly disinterested, especially the Japanese delegate. This was fine, just so long as they had treated the actual peace treaty with respect. Renner didn't particularly care how they felt at this very moment in time. It was also likely that the list of speakers was created here for the sake of those that hadn't been granted an opportunity to speak during the previous German peace presentation. The King of Hungary rose to his feet. Renner relaxed somewhat. Before the plenary meeting, King Charles had informed Renner that he wished to speak about the situation in this part of Europe, and he had assured the Austrian Chancellor that he might serve as a friendly voice in a sea of sceptics. Charles nodded at Renner before beginning. Thank you, gentlemen, and Mr. Chancellor of Austria. As you are aware, my prestigious dynasty has been reinstalled by popular demand on the throne of Hungary. In addition, thanks to the protocols of this treaty, a Habsburg family member with allied approval, enshrined within this Austrian peace treaty, has also been installed in Croatia. According to the terms of this arrangement, the houses of Savoy in Italy and Habsburg in Hungary will engage in a profitable marriage. I wish to communicate the measure of my thanks to the Allied parties, and to Italy in particular, for permitting this mutually beneficial arrangement to go ahead. It is refreshing that previous prejudices have not stood in the way of a sensible arrangement. Into the future, time will tell how durable our peace treaty arrangements will be, but for now may I communicate the pleasure of my people and my thanks once more to the Allied parties for facilitating this arrangement. 
Joseph Zahn nodded a thanks in King Charles's direction, and Vittorio Orlando rose from his seat next. The Italian premier seemed greatly recharged since the solution to the old tensions with the British had been resolved. Italy was now guaranteed a sphere of influence in the Balkans, and she had relinquished much of her claims on the Middle East, which had cost her very little, practically. Orlando cleared his throat and began. Thank you, Your Majesty, and thank you, gentlemen, for gathering here for these discussions. It is necessary that we engage in the proper procedures for arriving at a proper peace with Austria. It has long concerned Italians that peace with Austria was not a priority, and therefore would be delayed indefinitely. Yet I am greatly contented to note that this has not occurred, and we stand here today confident in our ability to make peace with both the Habsburg and Hohenzollern patrimonies. Further, following the resolution of Italy's difficulties with its allies, and the allocation of sensible spheres of influence in the Balkans, I am pleased that the sovereignty of these Balkan countries has been respected. The linkage of the two great houses, formerly at war and their erection in Croatia, represents a symbolic step forward for our peoples, and it is my earnest hope that this is merely the first of many steps. I must speak briefly on the situation in the Middle East, where the investigative committee has returned its verdict after many weeks of work. It was long assumed, incorrectly, that Italy was to blame for the sudden eruption of uprisings in the Arabian Peninsula and the compromising of King Hussein bin Ali's regime. In addition, it was assumed, also incorrectly, that Italy had played a significant role in arming Jewish settlers in Palestine. Italy's good name has been cleared by the recent conclusions of the aforementioned committee. It seems that, far from a single country shouldering the blame, a combination of factors and actors were to blame, in addition to the national aspirations and ambitions of many Arabian figures, such as Prince Navwar Sharif, who was previously resident in this conference, and to my understanding is currently in hiding in the peninsula with sympathetic followers. The Arabian situation, notwithstanding these findings, remains more stable than ever, and has sensibly been delineated into spheres of influence, whereby us Europeans can ensure that civilised rule prevails over the old Ottoman traditions of insufficient governance and barbaric injustice. Finally, pending the signing of this Austrian treaty, Italy hopes one day to join the Pact of Cartagena, or at least play some role in the Continental Defence Accord, whereby Bolshevism will be stopped and the peace with Germany preserved. Our actions today in making an Austrian peace will play no small role in this process, and Italy is honoured to play its part. Vittorio Orlando sat down, and it was clear that, after many weeks of agitation and activism, he was now content to not say any more. Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam then rose to speak. Gentlemen, there is nothing I can say which has not been said or communicated with much gusto about this treaty already. Presently, I am very pleased to note that the spirit of cooperation has prevailed during these negotiations. My colleagues in the British delegation owe many debts of goodwill to our counterparts, but these debts will all be worthwhile if this troubled region of Europe enjoys generations of unbroken peace. Britain has certainly prioritised the German peace, having expended so much in reaching it, yet it has been a source of great satisfaction that the interested parties here have worked overtime to reach a settlement with Austria. Britain notes with satisfaction the respect shown for sovereignty inherent within the treaty and the guarantees made by these small but deserving Balkan states who have suffered greatly in this recent war. Fitzwilliam then returned to his seat. His speech could easily have been shortened to a single sentence, but it was certainly a nice change to hear compliments rather than insults 
thrown across the floor. This all seemed in jeopardy, though, once Ioan Bratianu of Romania stood up. To Renner, Bratianu was a potential ally, as his regrets and bitterness singled him out as a dissatisfied statesman, prone to rash declarations and decisions, who did not make friends easily, though. Surely, though, today, the man would be on his best behaviour? Bratianu did not leave his audience guessing for long, and after taking a long drag of his cigarette, adding to the cloud of smoke above his head, the Romanian premier began. Gentlemen, much has been said about the injustice and justice of this treaty, but very little has been said about the impact of this peace, or the Hungarian peace, on the Romanian people. I must issue a protest that our ancestral lands in Transylvania have been subject to such an unnatural power-sharing agreement. I do not wish to waste your time, so I will make it plain now the bare facts. The Romanian people are not pleased, and imagined far better rewards for their participation in the war than they presently received. There was already talk in Bucharest of a spoiled victory, and that our former foes in Hungary and Austria have been treated too gently. Am I the only party who objects to an expansion of the Habsburg royal house into Croatia? To me, the thing seems ridiculous and inherently unjust. I hereby register a protest at this decision, for I had objected many times previously in the course of the minor council deliberations, but I was plainly ignored. Good day. With that, Bratianu walked towards the door of the room, his nose high in the air and a cloud of smoke trailing after him. If he expected anyone to urge him to return or stay behind, then the Romanian premier was to be disappointed. The eyes of the room followed him out, and breathed a collective sigh of relief once he had vanished. Perhaps there was some reason to believe his warnings, but then again Bratianu had stretched the truth so many times, it was genuinely hard to tell whether he was telling the truth or not anymore. Either way, it was time to move to the next delegate, and Walter Cameron rose to his feet. I will not waste your time, gentlemen, for I requested this moment to speak merely to register my contentment at your peacemaking accomplishments. In addition, I wish to make it plain to our Austrian and Hungarian friends that America can easily serve as your friend or your foe, depending on your respect for peace in the next generation. I urge you all to move past our previous jealousies and to embrace what truly matters in our future relations together. I am happy to sign this treaty now. As Walter Cameron sat down, René Massigli stood up. My American friend deserves praise for his role in helping to craft the present treaty, the Frenchman said, before continuing. I too do not wish to test your patience, my friends, but I must urge the Austrian and Hungarian delegates present to consider their future now that the recent crisis has passed. Presently, France is seeking to expand its continental defence accord with a view towards defending European civilization from Bolshevik-Russian attack. Inherent in this scheme is the Polish friendship, and it is therefore a great source of contentment to me and to France that the Austrian peace treaty affords recognition to the independence of Poland, Czechoslovakia, and other states so critical to this mission. In the future, France wishes to extend this arrangement as much as possible by linking together like-minded statesmen to block the westward expansion of Bolshevism. Austrian and Hungarian volunteers on the Clemenceau Directive were gladly noted, and your contributions towards combating communism have not been forgotten. Friends, it is time we moved into the next phase of our relations together, and I am confident that I will not find either Hungary or Austria wanting in this regard. As if on cue, Edward Benesch, representing Czechoslovakia, then stood up to parrot Masigli's message. 
My French friend captures the key message of the moment, Benesh said, before adding, The time for hostility among Europeans is past. We Czechs earnestly desire friendship with all of our neighbours, and we wish at the same time to serve as the sword of peace, alongside the shield of Austria and the armour of Hungary. Let us focus our energies on preserving this peace and defending it against the anarchic terror of Bolshevism, rather than on old rivalries, which no longer have relevance in the new order of states. Paderewski received a nod from Zan as Benesh sat down, and the Polish premier then stood up and cleared his throat. Gentlemen, I realise that in a structured plenary conference like this, the constant referrals to new delegates may give this process the appearance of a conveyor belt of opinions, impossible to digest all at once. If this be the result of our imperfect effort to arrive fairly at a peace, then let me first say this. In 1795, Austria played its part in the elimination of Poland from the map of Europe. Since that date, she has played no small role in preventing our resurrection. Were Poles to hold grudges, these conversations now would not be possible. However, the 30 million Poles who earnestly desire a lasting peace and protection against Bolshevism recognize the value of forgiveness. Just as Poland forgives, I hope that Austria cooperates. I cannot speak for our neighbours, but should Austria threaten the peace of Europe again, we Poles will not be so forgiving this time. Please, Herr Renner, consider the Austrian people and the trials they have endured before demonstrating the token resistance to this peace which might be expected. Karl Renner found himself standing without even truly planning to. He had never really thought out what he would say, yet somehow the words came out, and Renner liked to imagine that he didn't even sound particularly nervous. My Polish friend is correct, Renner said. Austria does indeed owe a debt of peace to its neighbours, but do not imagine that this is a debt which Austrians will not willingly pay. My people are anxious to bring this war to an end, and we were buoyed by the terms of the current peace treaty, for it did not place Austrians under an impossible tyranny. Granted, Austrians are not used to being reduced so completely in Europe, but it is my belief that we can replace with friendship and mutual agreements what the Habsburg Empire once maintained through tradition and force. Gentlemen, I urge the signing process to begin, for I am very tired indeed of war, and I wish to move as soon as is possible into the next phase of Austria's existence, where war is only a terrible memory and peace is the status quo. Please join me and join Austria in believing that such a thing is possible. I thank you for your time and efforts, and I urge all peace-loving statesmen forward to be brave and to make peace which does justice to this sacrifice. Paderewski nodded at Renner in acknowledgement, and perhaps even with respect. Renner wasn't sure, but Zan gestured to Sir Robert Borden, the Canadian Premier, who had been tasked with closing the meeting. Gentlemen of the conference, many worthwhile words have been said, but now it is time to make such intentions official. Please join me in signing this document and in ending the conflict with Austria once and for all. All present rose to their feet again, and the major powers signed first, with Renner walking gingerly to the desk where the treaty was laid out and following their lead. The whole thing was like a blur, but he couldn't help feel somewhat emotional. The gravity of the moment was palpable. Could this be the end of a conflict which had raged so furiously for so many years? Gentlemen, boomed Sir Robert Borden, confirming the news. With these names affixed to this treaty of peace, I commend it to history, and I note that the war with Austria is now over. 
clapping soon gave way to jubilant applause, and some sheets of paper were even thrown into the air in celebration. Someone patted Karl Renner on the back, but he did not see who it was. Looking out the window, in a kind of daydreaming trance, Karl Renner saw a swan make a spectacular, beautiful take-off from the large lake below. Was this conflict finally leaving Austria behind? Karl Renner could only hope so. Monsieur Venizelos, surely I can get you a drink? The request was sincere enough, but the Greek premier didn't know how wise it was to drink with this Irishman. Sean T. O'Kelly placed two glasses of beer on the counter before exclaiming, To freedom from empire! Venizelos cautiously sipped his beer while O'Kelly took a large gulp of his. As O'Kelly began talking with the bartender, the Greek premier slinked away unnoticed and walked to where Dmitry Robotnik was standing glass of vodka in hand. The two men shook hands. Congratulations, Monsieur Venizelos. I hear that the Ottoman Empire has been granted an official peace, Robotnik said. Correct, Mr. Robotnik, Venizelos replied. Greece will be secured well into the future by this treaty. Our ancestral claims to these ancient lands will no longer be ignored. Venizelos then tipped his glass towards Robotnik. Cheers to the old friendship of Greece and Russia. Louis Botha watched the two men conversing, but before he thought of joining them, a familiar friend patted him on the back. General McKay, Botha said in a silky voice. Mr. Botha, how are you keeping? McKay said. The Australian's face was alight with excitement. After several false starts with this conference now over, his duties were at an end, and he would soon be permitted to take the liner on his long journey home. I am well, General. How are the family? McKay's good mood continued. I recently received a letter from home. They are proud of my services and eager for me to return, as am I. What awaits you in Australia, General? Botha asked. It was likely the two men would never cross paths again, being on different sides of the world. McKay seemed to think about the question for barely a few seconds before replying with a great deal of pride. Retirement, Mr. Botha. Retirement on my farm and a nice quiet life with my family. These things, which I for so long scorned as I searched for my fame and fortune, now seem like an impossible paradise. If I never see another conference like this one, if I never see another soldier, Mr. Botha, then it will be too soon. Botha nodded. Well, the bearded South African replied with a smile. I wish you all good fortune. God knows you have earned a quiet retirement, General, after all you have done for us. McKay mouthed a thank you and walked over to the exit of the bar with a spring in his step. Still holding a glass of whiskey, he walked straight out of the bar into an awaiting taxi and was driven towards the port where his long voyage home would begin. As the Annabay Hotel faded into the rearview mirror, McKay raised his glass to the driver. Here's to you, my friend, McKay said. Now let's go home. Back in the fully kitted out bar of the Annabay Hotel, A celebratory atmosphere had long since set in. The treaties had now been completed. The work finished. David Lloyd George sat at a table with the Japanese foreign minister, Makino Nabuaki, and the latter appeared to be discussing the finer points of their alliance, first signed in 1902. Lloyd George's political mind, never resting, continued to tick onwards. Bognan Kuzal, 
couldn't help but scoff at the British Prime Minister as he took an enormous gulp of his beer tangard. As he scoffed, Bognan couldn't help but wonder at what might have been. Had Lloyd George been more reasonable, had he been less anti-Polish and more amenable to letting Poland have its just desserts, then Eastern Europe would have faced a much more certain future. Paderewski had assured him that time would tell, and that the relationship with the Germans could only improve since it was in their best interests for it to do so, especially considering the threat which the Bolsheviks posed. Still, Bognan Kudzol couldn't help but remain sceptical. After all he had learned of diplomacy in the last six months, and considering all he knew of Polish history, he knew better than to trust the words or promises of foreign statesmen. General Pilsudski, Bognan mused. Now that was a man who put Poland above everything else. That was a man he felt he could believe in. I am not fussy, Mr. Hurst. A simple ale will do the job perfectly well, Bruce Pug remarked, as William Randolph Hurst fawned over what to order for the men. Seated with Pug was Oliver Flanagan, and the three of them had recently been poring over some treaties which had been agreed with Germany and Japan. Pug knew dynamite when he saw it. These arrangements would effectively commit the United States to combat the influence and power at the British, at sea but also across the world, by empowering her rivals in Europe and competing with her naval supremacy. "'You're sure you don't need something stronger?' Hurst asked, gesturing to the weighted documents in front of Pug. It was supposed to be time for relaxing, but these lately arranged draft treaties meant more work. "'I am quite sure, Mr. Hurst,' Pug replied. These treaties plan for policies. They do not guarantee war between our nations. Such a thing would be impossible. I only want for democracy to flourish, and for the old methods of power politics to recede. Sounds like too big an ask to me, Hurst remarked as he walked over to the bar. Their table was situated in an alcove, and Pug had long since bade his insincere farewells to the relevant statesmen. Woodrow Wilson had already been brought home to Washington, and the debate continued in Congress over whether he was sufficiently incapacitated to be impeached. Wilson, typically, was refusing to step down, which had occasioned a frenzy of political activity. Suggestions for a new Secretary of State were also put forward, in light of Lansing's failure to achieve the league which he desired, and his subsequent resignation. House had recently written to Pug outlining the details of what was going down in Washington. Apparently, Bruce Pug's name was high on the list of candidates to succeed Lansing as Secretary of State, if Pug indeed wished to contest the matter. Pug was not entirely sure what he wanted. On the one level he enjoyed the contest, but on the other, the ignorance and naivety of some statesmen galled him like nothing else. After all these years of war, and all these months of peacemaking, Pug had loudly complained to Roosevelt the previous day. Europe appears more imperialist and 19th century in its approaches to the world than ever, what we have now is an alliance system which Metternich would have been proud of. We do not see a group of nations who have learned their lessons, but they seem doomed to repeat their mistakes. It was during the course of that conversation that Roosevelt had revealed his plan to contest the presidency, whenever the contest would be held. Pug had not been especially surprised, but he had been surprised by Roosevelt's request that Pug serve as his Secretary of State should he be successful. Secretary of State while under a no-nonsense taskmaster like Theodore Roosevelt? Pug thought he could manage it, but he was waiting to see how the political situation developed in the United States first. 
there was little sense in committing to Roosevelt when he could potentially be Secretary of State now, so he would have to weigh up his career move carefully. Pug already knew what kind of Secretary of State he would be. These draft treaties would form the basis of his policy. If Britain and her European friends wished to venture back in time, then the United States would seek to protect its interests. Not isolationism, per se, but containment. Containment of the potential growth of an Anglo-American relationship was what Pug wished to avoid. To serve as England's friend now would hand that snooty empire the keys to the world. For the sake of this world, Britain could not be allowed to rest on her laurels. Pug had stopped listening to what Flanagan was saying. It was something to do with oil anyway, he knew that much. In the corner of the bar, he could see Lloyd George, the man of the hour, disingenuously shaking Vittorio Orlando's hand as though the two had been best friends all along. Pug felt his blood boil. Perhaps it was not the Germans, but the British who posed the greatest threat to the world peace. Regardless, Pug was determined not to let the recent conflict go to waste. He would challenge Britain's self-professed right to rule the world by force and old politics, even if nobody else would. Your ale, Mr. Pug, Hurst said, plonking down the tall glass in front of him. Pug watched transfixed as the bubbles rose to the top of the glass, forming a head of foam on the top. Hurst looked puzzled. I did ask if you were sure you wanted ale, Mr. Pug. Don't be telling me now that you want something else. Pug ignored the loud-mouthed media mogul and focused on the glass. Condensation covered it and he could smell the hops, but he kept focusing on the bubbles. Hundreds, possibly thousands of bubbles, some of which popped before they reached the top. Others made it all the way. A smile spread across Pug's face. Under his tutelage, with his guidance, America would rise to the top as well. The United States would be the cream of the crop of world powers, and from her position of power, then and only then could the world be safe. Pug then picked up the glass and took a long swig of the ale, smacked his lips at the bitterness, and placed the glass down thoughtfully. Bittersweet though it might be, it was time for the Americas to finally emerge from their old world shadow. The fallen deserved nothing less. And that, history friends, is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed our final actual instalment of the Delegation Game, wherein we gave Germany and Austria their peace treaties after several long months of negotiations, riots, disruption, controversy, and much more. Your delegates have been through the ringer during this game, but it is not over yet. Make sure you tune in for the final two episodes, wherein first, we examine the fates of your delegates and where they went from here, and second, we look at the fate of the world which these delegates created and how it differed or copied the development of our own. I hope you'll join me for those two episodes due on Monday the 8th of July, but until then I'd like to say a huge thanks to everyone who has played the game or listened in over the last six months. This game, from beginning to end, has been a lot of fun to play, and you should all be very happy indeed with your progress and being the guinea pigs which I have experimented on you by making you play this game in the first place. While we have nothing narrative-changing for you to vote on this time, I do want you to vote in the Delegation Game Awards, where you can vote for the most effective delegate, most annoying delegate, most interesting plot point, best death and best chat group. I hope you'll offer your opinion one last time, and that you'll join me for the concluding episodes. But until then, dear delegates, my name is Zach. I've been your Delegation Master. You've been listening to episode 20 of the Delegation Game. 
thanks for listening or playing or both and I'll be seeing you all soon deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.